Please stand for the reading of scripture. Passage this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verses 12 through 18. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end, but their minds were hardened. For to this, for to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, Whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Andy. Good morning. Happy New Year. This is the first Sunday we've been together in 2018, so happy New Year. It's the seventh, though. Uh, you've had a full week. How many of you have already given up on your New Year's resolutions? Yeah, I got one amen and, uh, and a few chuckles. My uh, New Year's resolution this year was to not procrastinate so much, uh, but I haven't started on my goal yet, and I figure I've got all year to get going on that one. So, uh, you know what they say, the sooner you fall behind, the more time you have to catch up. That's my motto. Well, it probably doesn't surprise you that most New Year's resolutions are in the area of health, fitness, you know, get fit, eat better, lose weight. But then, of course, what inevitably happens, um, those are great goals, but a couple weeks go by and those goals tend to morph into eat more, move less, wear stretchy pants, uh, you know, it's, it's for fun. Uh, it's hard. I, I read somewhere recently that only 8% of people follow through on their New Year's resolutions. Whatever they resolve to do at the beginning of the year, they're still doing at the end of the year. 8%. 8%. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be in the minority. Um, it, it's hard, <laughs> that was a slow one, that, that took a second. Um, it's hard to take a, you know, a goal or an image or, or, or a concept and like put it out there and then do the hard work of every single day working towards that goal. Especially when the goal is slow to come, I'd, I'd much rather have some sort of like get fit quick regimen, you know, a, a minimum of effort for a maximum of results. That's, that's the American way. We do this, of course, not just in the areas of, of fitness and health and all that, but we look for shortcuts in dating and saving money, in parenting and other relationships, in our careers, in self-improvement and character development and all that. And in the church, we're sometimes tempted to look for the shortcut or the quick fix when it comes to discipleship, which is what the church is here for. Depending on who you ask, the American church is at varying stages of crisis. 
We're losing millennials by the truckload, I keep reading. Younger people aren't coming to church as often as they used to. People used to disappear in their 20s, then they have kids and come back in their 30s, but they're not coming back anymore. Uh, giving is down across the board. One study I read said that every generation tends to give about half of what its parents did. Uh, one, another study said since 1973, the number of Americans who have a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in churches and organized religion has fallen from a high of 68% to a low of 42%. We're told the average person, the average regular attender, attends church re less regularly than they used to, down from three times a month to twice a month, sometimes once a month. The church is struggling, at least that's what I'm being told. And the solution, everybody seems to agree, the solution is discipleship. Better discipleship. More discipleship. In fact, if you go to Amazon and you click into their Christian discipleship section, you'll find a list of 8,184 books. Uh, this morning, that was the number. 201 of those came out in the last 90 days. There seems to be a market for church leaders who are panicking and will read anything they can get their hands on about discipleship. The thought goes, if we, if we could just figure out how to, how to make people have a, a real faith, not just faith, but a real faith, or a vibrant faith, or robust faith, or a strong faith, or a sticky faith, or a faith that lasts, then maybe if we could take faith but add some adjective to it, or a string of adjectives to it that make it really real, we could stem the tide, we could turn around all these societal shifts, we could maybe, you know, reclaim a generation for Christ, we could increase faith commitments and get people to participate in our institutions again. That's the thinking anyway. And we've been having some of those same conversations uh, here at Faith, at Faith Church, uh, same conversations other leaders are having in other churches because we see some of the same things. We don't like to see our kids grow up and leave the church to go to college and walk away from Jesus. It breaks our hearts. We don't like to see people stuck or feeling stuck in their relationship with God, like they don't know how to grow. I just don't know what to do. I don't know how to get anywhere. We don't like watching our attendance drop every year. We're grieved by the stories of people who've wandered away from faith because they felt like they could just never really belong. They couldn't connect. We're, we get together every week because we're a community that wants to see people united around a common commitment to Christ and grow in that commitment and grow as disciples. So for 2018 at least to kick off this year for the first couple of months, we're going to take in some extended time to focus on discipleship. Discipleship at Faith Church. What's our, what's our vision for discipleship at Faith? Now, we're not going to put up graphs and start talking about what morphs into what and, and uh, how we're changing this or how we're changing that. We're going to take a step back from the programmatic side of it to talk about what is a disciple? What does it mean to grow as a disciple? How, what kind of disciple do we feel like God is calling us to create here at Faith you know, for this age that we live in, for this time in this location? We're going to spend the next couple months doing that. We'll take a few breaks in the middle, especially around Easter, so it won't be all discipleship all the time. Uh, but that's, that's where we're planning on going, just so you know. So my job is to kind of kick this whole thing off. Start talking about discipleship. What is a disciple? What is discipleship? Before we 
begin and jump into the passage that you've already heard read and, and look at 2 Corinthians 3, though, I want to make sure we're on the same page in, in terms of just some basic definitions. Uh, because disciple, discipleship, the words we throw out that we often don't define, or maybe we all assume we mean the same thing when really there's a bunch of different, different definitions out there. So uh, bear with me while we take the couple, next couple minutes to, I'll just be human dictionary for a bit. A disciple basically is a follower. Now, it's not a church-only word. It's not a word that only shows up in the church. It had a long history before the New Testament in various uh, Greek philosophical traditions and in Jewish rabbinical traditions. Uh, In Jesus' time, the word uh, a disciple was a thing. Everybody knew what it was. A disciple was someone who had, uh, in a sense, apprenticed themselves to a master teacher. They would literally follow the person, not like follow on Instagram, but like follow as in walk behind them, walk with them for many years. They would follow them in order to learn from them whatever they were an expert in. So if it was in the Greek philosophical system, it was to be a disciple of that teacher was to learn their way of thinking about the world. If they were a disciple of a Jewish rabbi, it was to learn to understand God's law, the Old Testament, the way that rabbi understands it. So a disciple would apprentice themselves to a master teacher, follow them around for an extended period of time, learning to understand the subject from their teacher, learning how to think like their teacher, learning how to act like their teacher, so that one day they could split off and become a master teacher themselves and take their own disciples. It was essentially how teachers funded their own lives by having disciples or having apprentices. It was, uh, discipleship was an individual thing, kind of like entering a university program. There was a specific goal and a specific outcome in mind, a student who could become a teacher. And in the New Testament, and this, I didn't know this until I was studying this week, I don't know how I got through seminary without finding this out, but the word disciple only shows up in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. I didn't know that. Disciple is only used in the Gospels to talk of people who were actually literally following behind Jesus. They were walking with him and living with him. They were the disciples. And then in Acts, the book that's the history of the early church, um, disciple is used to refer to people, people who are following Jesus, but not in the walking around behind him sense, um, because he died and rose again and went to heaven, but uh, in that they've entered into a relationship with Jesus by faith and been indwelt by the Holy Spirit and adopted into God's family sense. That's what it meant to follow him. So disciples in the Gospels and in Acts are uh, those who believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is God himself who, who has come to save them from their sins, But to be a disciple meant more than just uh, learning a set of facts or or memorizing some things that Jesus taught. One theologian uh, writes that following Jesus as a disciple means the unconditional sacrifice of one's whole life for the whole of one's life. Because the difference between Jesus and other teachers is that you never get to the point where you're equal with Jesus when he's your teacher. You never get to the point where you get to split off and say, now I'm, a dis- you know, I'm, I'm my own master in the way of Jesus and, and I will teach you. You're always a servant. You're always a learner when you're a disciple of Jesus. Now, what I thought was fascinating is that by the time we get to then the letters, the rest of the New Testament, the word disciple never shows up again. Uh, instead, Peter and Paul and those who are writing letters to the churches on how to be disciples, they never use that word. Instead, they call 
uh, those who are Christians, they call them by a, a group of, of other words, uh, brothers and sisters, or the church as a whole, uh, or saints, or believers. The idea of being a disciple, a individualistic, knowledge-oriented, outcome-based endeavor, uh, begins to, to shift, or at least be filled out in the early church, into a community-oriented, spirit-empowered, faith-based dynamic, always in the collective, the church, the believers, the saints. And I think the early church adopted these more uh, descriptive words to bring a, a fuller definition to what we mean when we say a disciple. But one thing we really need to be aware of is that all the words used to describe Christians in the New Testament, whether it's saints or believers or disciples or brothers and sisters or followers of the way, they are all binary terms. That means you either are one or you aren't. You, are, you either are a disciple or you are not a disciple. Uh, essentially, if you are one who has cast yourself on the mercy of God by faith in what Christ has done for you on the cross, then you are a disciple. Now, you may not be a very good one, but you are one. Part of the problem is that in all this discipleship stuff that I've read and been reading, uh, it's always, well, okay, a disciple is someone who follows Jesus, right? But a true disciple is a disciple who follows Jesus and, and then there's a list of measurable outcomes, a list of things you can see the person doing. They remain committed to their uh, faith institution. Uh, they obey regularly. They tithe regularly. They um, are in accountability groups. They baptize. They can help other people become disciples. They can, and, and there's a list that gets formed, and we start to, to get into this idea where, yeah, there's disciples, but true disciples are people who believe and visibly act it out in a way that I can measure and feel good about it. And that's a problem, obviously, because the more we start to set up a, a list of behaviors and outcomes, and the more we talk about that as if that were true discipleship, the easier it is to start focus on just, focusing on just those behaviors and outcomes and not the relationship with Christ himself, which leads to those behaviors and outcomes. You see the difference? It's like teaching to the test. As soon as you've got a, a metric or a way of testing whether or not your students are progressing, it's very tempting to start teaching that specific stuff instead of helping your students learn to fall in love with the topic you're teaching. Discipleship or becoming a disciple is, is not just about certain behaviors and faith commitments. It's about a relationship with the risen God, a relationship which as it grows will lead to those behaviors and those commitments. That's important. We have to keep that in the back of our minds as we're turning to 2 Corinthians 3 now and as we go into the next couple months to talk about discipleship because as much as we will in the next couple months talk about the kind of disciple we feel like God is leading us to help produce here, to help create, um, it's never about the outcomes. It's never about the list. It's about what we do to grow in our relationship with Jesus. So 2 Corinthians 3. 
Uh, we're just going to spend the rest of the time we have looking at, at just verse 18. Um, this is this a central point in this particular text? Uh, if you want to follow along, it's on page 1146 of the Black Bible that's under the seat in front of you or in the uh, video booth back there. We've got uh, Bibles in other languages if you want to follow along there as well. Um, but I can't help you with the page number in those. Anyway, 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians, it's a letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth, and every time the Apostle Paul wrote a letter to the church uh, there, he had to address different issues that had come up. This was a messed up church. If you've read through the letters, you know there was infighting and backbiting, incest and prostitution, fighting over what food was allowed at their celebration of the Lord's Supper, disagreements over who has the authority to teach, who doesn't, can people still prophesy, can they speak in other languages— all sorts of things kept coming up. And so in each of his letters, Paul takes time to say, look, here's the gospel. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. This is what God has done on your behalf. Now, here's how that works out in these different areas of life, these different issues you're facing. So if any church needed a focus on discipleship, Corinth was it. Now, in chapter 3, Paul, uh, he begins defending his reputation a little bit. There was an attack by some leaders within the church at Corinth to discredit Paul in order to elevate themselves into a leadership position. And so he has to take a moment to say, no, I have the authority that has been granted to me as an apostle. Uh, But he doesn't get very far before he gets off into this um, tangent that lasts for three or four chapters. And it's at the beginning of this tangent, he starts reflecting on the story of Moses, now, in Moses' uh, life, it's recorded in Exodus 34, that whenever Moses went into the tent of meeting to talk face-to-face with God, when he came out, his face was radiating the glory of God. Now, I don't know what that looks like. I, I'm, I'm imagining it's more than just a bad sunburn. So he's not just like red and blistery, but somehow he's, he, he's face-to-face with God. He's talking with God. God is communicating his word to him. Moses comes out to tell the people of Israel what God has told him, and his face is just radiating God's glory. And so as he tells the people of Israel, here's what God has said to me. They, they can see his face. They know he has actually met with God. He's not making this stuff up. But every time after Moses communicated With the people of God, he would put a veil over his face. He would cover it until the next time he went into the tent of meeting. He would take off the veil. He would meet God face to face. He would come out with his face radiating God's glory. He would communicate the word of God to the people and then cover his face again. Paul's reflecting on this. And he's saying Moses had to cover his face because it kept fading. Every time he went in to meet with God and came out, then the glory would eventually fade off of his face. And he didn't want the Israelites to see that the the glory of the meeting with God could could wear out, that their covenant with God was the kind that, that fades and has to be continually renewed. So this is Paul's interpretation of what's going on in Exodus 34. So he, he veils his face, he covers it each time. And Paul's reflecting on this, thinking about it. He's like, if Moses went in and he saw God and his face radiated. And, and if, if the, covenant, uh, the covenant of letters, the covenant that, that was written on stone had that much glory, how much more glory does the covenant of life, the covenant of righteousness in Christ's name have? He says, yeah, that was glorious. The radiance coming off of Moses' face was phenomenal, but it pales in comparison Beholding the glory of God in the person of Jesus. 
Paul's saying, look, you, you look back at Moses and that glory, that covenant was temporary and fading and would one day be replaced. But you look at the permanent and eternal and never to be surpassed covenant of Christ and the glory is profoundly phenomenal, such that, that the original glory looks like nothing. It's like the temperatures we've been experiencing the last couple of weeks. When we went to Iowa uh, for Christmas, it was so cold at Jenna's parents' house that the inside of the garage was covered in frost. And then we came here, and it was 20 degrees, and it felt amazing. Right? It's so warm outside, I don't even need a coat. Well, it's still cold when it's 20 degrees, but the point is it's so much warmer than that. It's like that is, that is nothing compared to this. When, when Paul says, look at, look at the, the radiance of the glory of the old covenant versus the new covenant of Christ, he's like, that's, that's like a lightning bug, and this is like lightning. There's such a difference. And Paul says that we, like Moses, get to look at the glory of God, but not the glory of God in the old covenant, the glory of God in the new covenant. Look at verse 18. Paul says, and we we all with unveiled face, like Moses, going into the tent of meeting with the veil off, we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Now, your translation may have a different verb than behold there. Some translations use the word reflect. Uh, both are trying to get at this, this word that only shows up once in the Bible. It's, it's a word that means to look at something as you look at it in a mirror. So some will say, um, beholding God's glory as in a mirror. Now, the point is not that you're seeing a reflection or that you're seeing it obliquely, like you're not looking at the thing, you're looking at a reflection of the thing. That's not the point. The point is, in a mirror of the, that day, you know, a mirror was basically anything slightly shiny that had been buffed up a little bit, you, you couldn't see what was in the mirror unless you got really close, unless you inspected it, unless you looked very carefully at it. Uh, to behold God's glory as in a mirror is, is to gaze into that mirror, looking to pick out every detail of what you can see. Now, I know some of us, we all have different habits when it comes to mirrors. Some of you, it's obvious by looking at you, you you've never seen one. Um, <laughs> Others of you, it's obvious you have lots of them around. You know, you look great. You look really good. Uh, the, the point is not that you're just seeing a reflection. The point is that you're spending time looking at it, inspecting the thing that's in there. So when Paul says that we all with unveiled face are beholding the glory of God, he means we're getting face to face with the glory of God. We're looking closely to see what, what is this glory? What is this glory that's shown to us in the new covenant? covenant of life. See, we who behold and reflect the glory of the Lord in in Christ are beholding a permanent and unfading glory. No new covenant to come to replace it. All that has to be done has been done. And Paul is saying that when we look at that, when we behold that, when we inspect it, when we think about it, when we contemplate it, when, when we spend our time gazing at the glory of God as revealed to us in Christ, our hearts are unveiled and open to, to the full life-changing effect that God's glory has on us as it transforms us into the image of the one that we are looking at, Christ himself. In other words, and quite literally, the more we gaze on Christ, the more we reflect him. 
the more we gaze on Christ, the more we reflect him in our character, in our actions, in our attitudes, in, in what we love, and in, in who we are. Now, I'm not just um, equating glory with Jesus or um, you know, the glory of the Lord with Jesus or the image with Christ or anything just because it's convenient for interpretation. That actually comes from chapter 4 if you look down. Uh, you look at verse 6, and Paul says that God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And, in, and up two verses, in verse 4, he says, Jesus Christ is the image of God. This, this is what he means when he says we're, we're beholding the glory, we're being changed into the image, we're seeing the knowledge of Christ and being changed into the image of Jesus. That when we look at and reflect on and behold the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done for us in his sacrifice and our place on the cross. Looking at that glory, that contemplation of Christ results in transformation. It results in a transformation that happens to us and one that progresses by degrees from one degree of glory to another until one day we are completely transformed to be like Christ. That's discipleship. This verse is discipleship, growing to become more like Christ. And according to the picture that Paul is painting in this verse, discipleship is less about all the things we do and more about what is done to us and in us as we're actively beholding the glory of God. Let's think about what, is, what has God done for us? In the Old Testament, to be in the presence of someone is uh, usually expressed idiomatically as uh, to be before their face. To be in someone's presence is to be before their face. To be before the face of God is to be in his presence. To be before the face of a teacher is to be before that teacher. Sometimes they also use the phrase, at the foot of, you learn at the foot of a teacher. But in the face of, in the presence of God, is what it, what it means to be, in the face of God is what it means to be in, in his presence. And when we look at the cross, we see Jesus, God himself, who eternally existed in the presence of God, before God's face, willingly stepping away from the presence of God, going to the cross, having the Father turn his face away so that you and I could Gaze at Jesus, gaze at God face to face. What Jesus did for us on the cross was willingly take the backside of God's presence so that we could be face to face with God. When we contemplate the glory of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, what it means is just is looking continuously and constantly back to the cross. What has Jesus done for us? Who is he? And what has he done? And given what he's done... That transforms us. The glory of God transforms us into the image of the one who has done that for us. So if we're going to talk about the difference between a disciple and a true disciple, or a, or a not-so-great disciple and a good disciple, it's not about a list of measurable outcomes. It's not about a list of behaviors. It's not about a list of beliefs uh, in terms of signing on to a specific doctrinal statement or anything like that. The difference between someone who's not growing in Christ and someone who is, is how often, how constantly, to what extent are they doing the things necessary 
to just gaze at the glory of God. What makes somebody a disciple who is growing in their relationship with Jesus is it's just the extent to which they're taking the time, they're doing the, the practices, they're, they're doing the things it takes to gaze at the glory of God. That's, that's what we're trying to talk about when we talk about discipleship at faith. Our vision for discipleship at faith, the, what we're going to talk about over the next couple of months, and this is critical to get, is just... We want to recognize that discipleship is nothing more than helping one another gaze at the glory of God and be transformed by that. Anything more than that, anything we add on to it that doesn't directly help us gaze at God's glory is just building brand loyalty. You know, we can spend our time building stronger community groups Uh, So that people feel connected at faith, they build friendships here, and so they associate positive feelings of belonging and acceptance with faith church, and that's great. And we should do that. But if our community groups don't help one another gaze at the glory of God and be transformed into the image of the Christ who died and rose again on our behalf, we're not making disciples. We're building brand loyalty. We could spend our time increasing the quality of our children's ministry so that young families feel like their kids are being taken care of, being taught the basic gospel truths, and and so they can see positive change in their children's behavior. And that's great, and we should do those things. But if we're doing those things without helping children gaze on the glory of God and who he is, what he's done for us in Christ, in ways that they can understand and so be transformed into the image of Jesus, not just modify their behavior, then we're not making disciples. We're just making parents like our church more. If we spend our time creating amazing men's and women's and student ministries, places where people feel like they belong and can express their authentic selves, ministries where different ages and stages get the answers to questions that are unique for their particular life stage, that's great, and we should do that. But if in those ministries we're not helping one another gaze at the glory of God revealed to us by the knowledge of Christ and who he is and what he's done for us, we're not making disciples. We're just increasing the loyalty of our customers. We could do all sorts of things. We could create mentoring relationships. We could serve in our communities. We could do justice and mercy. We could create excellent classes with amazing teachers that would just blow your minds with the things that they know. But if in all of that, if we're not introducing people to the glory of God and helping one another turn our gaze to what God has done for us in and through Christ. We're not making disciples. We're just just making loyal customers. Now, it's easier to measure customer loyalty than it is discipleship, which is why we tend to start talking about faith commitments and regularity of giving and prayer and how often do you do daily devotions and stuff like that. But again, we cannot lose sight of the fact that it's the relationship that leads to the behaviors, not the other way around. There are all sorts of things we could be doing at this church to help increase the likelihood that people will grow in their faith. I've got uh, plenty of books on the shelves in my office that tell me Sociologists have written and said, here's the top five characteristics of a church that is seeing a higher retention of young people in faith that aren't leaving. Um, Or here's how to help um, middle-aged families stick with your church. You need to offer these four types of programs. It's kind of uh, frustrating, actually, because some of them say add service opportunities. Some say add classes and homework. 
Some say add community events in smaller groups. Others say, well, you just need to change the way you do your whole worship service. Some say preach longer, really dig into the word, get down to the Greek, tell people what it means. Others say preach shorter, make it more interesting. Some say churches need to be smaller, more intimate, more like a family. Others say bigger, so you can offer a a bigger variety of things, so people are more likely to come to your church. You know, some books say offer more options. Others say do less, but do it better. Give homework, dig into the Bible, keep it easy, put the cookies on the the bottom shelf, raise people up to the top shelf. It's exhausting. Uh, But what I do know... What I do know, and this is from 2 Corinthians 3.18, if our discipleship efforts are pursuing the trends that sociologists tell us are more likely to produce faith, then we're not producing faith, we're producing loyal customers. Because when you read all of this stuff about how to help people grow in their faith, what sort of things you can do, it's very, very rarely are they actually talking about faith. They're talking about commitments to an institution. They're talking about attendance and giving. I'm, I don't really care about attendance and giving. I care about your relationship with Jesus. That's what I want to see grow. At faith, when we're talking about discipleship over the next four, five, six months, however long it, talks us, however long it takes us to talk about it, um, we're not... As much as we're going to talk about different things we hope people are doing, at at the end of the day, we are not just trying to get you to be more loyal to Faith Church or more loyal to Jesus. We're trying to help you do the things that will turn your gaze to the glory of God so that the glory of who, who Jesus is and what he's done can transform you from the inside out. Discipleship. Discipleship is about helping one another respond to the divine action of God toward us in Jesus. So there's no, there's no silver bullet for discipleship. There's like no get spiritually ripped quick program. Um, actually, that's not true. There are ones. Um, for Johnny, for Christmas uh, this year, I found uh, an LP at Goodwill that was a series of exercises set to contemporary Christian music. Um, contemporary meaning the 70s. And um, it's, it's great. A couple, uh, couple of ladies with very long hair and spandex on, on the cover. And it's, it's, called, it's called Firm Believer, <laughs> which just makes it perfect. I love it. So it's proudly on display in his office if you want to stop by afterwards and say it. There is apparently a 30-day you know, Bible Shred DVD or LP that you can at least play and, and exercise to Christian music, which somehow scares the calories out or something like that. I, I don't know. Um, but that, that record is not going to transform you into a fully devoted follower of Christ. Maybe a slightly more toned one, but not a mature disciple. There's no, there's no silver bullet. There's no quick fix way. There's no fast track microwave discipleship. There just isn't. A discipleship is growth. It's, it's organic. It takes time. It's slow. It's, it may feel plodding at times. Methodical. And it happens through all the same ordinary ways that God has been using for thousands of years. Prayer. Scripture. Community. Church. Worship. These are the things we do not so much because they're good in themselves, but because through them we direct our gaze to the glory of God and are transformed.
That's discipleship. Now, I know traditionally the uh, first sermon of the new year is supposed to be uh, enthusiastic and motivating and really make you fired up to get out there and take the world for Jesus. And I feel like I just told you to buckle in because it's a long, slow ride. Uh, So what do we do with this? What do we do with discipleship at faith? What do we do with beholding the glory of God? There's lots of different ways we could apply this, and a lot of it we're going to talk about over the next couple of months as we talk about our discipleship vision. Uh, but the one primary application I, I have to make sure we get across is this. Any discipleship that is not rooted and grounded first in a prayer that God would move is just engineering. If we are not first and foremost saturating everything we do in the prayer that, God, would you, would you move in our hearts, in the hearts of the people who are here, who are in a service or in a small group or in a Bible study or in a class, if you, would, if you don't move in our hearts to direct our gaze to your glory, who you are and what you've done for us in Christ, then anything we try to do is just engineering an outcome. It's not making disciples. I know you have a friend or a spouse or a parent or a child who is not a believer, who, is, who has maybe been, been active in a church but walked away from Jesus. You have somebody, I have people who are on my hearts that, that breaks my heart that they don't know who Jesus is. They don't have a relationship with Christ. And I, and I pray that they would go to church and that they would read a Bible, that they would be willing to talk to me about Jesus. And those are good things to pray But first and foremost, we have to pray that God would move. When I'm praying that somebody will have a conversation with me about Jesus so I can convince them that they should put their faith in him, it's easy for me to start to think that God is an idea that I need to rationally defend and justify. He's not an idea. He's a person. And people can do things. So let's pray that God would move, that he would draw people to him, that he would break down into this temporal world where we've basically walled him off, and he would turn people's eyes so that they see his glory, who he is and what he's done for us in Christ. Because if he doesn't, nothing's happening. If he doesn't, it's just us trying to make things happen on our own. Discipleship is helping one another and helping ourselves turn our eyes to the glory of God, what he has already done and what he is doing and continues to do for us in Christ. That's discipleship. It's simple, but I think it profoundly affects the way we think about what we're doing at Faith Church, how we're doing it, why we gather together, even why we open the Bible and talk about it together. God, show us your glory. Let's pray. Father, we did not deserve your glory. We didn't deserve you lifting our eyes out of the dirt and out of the mud so that we could see you. Father, we were hiding in in caves of our own ignorance. We were hiding and keeping our eyes away from the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that you have shown now in our hearts in Christ. We didn't deserve it. We didn't earn it. But you came to us. You moved toward us. And you showed yourself to us. Father, your glory is unsurpassable. What you have done for us in Christ will never be exceeded. We need nothing else. And so unlike Moses, but like Paul, we can be bold with this hope. We can boldly pray that you would move in the lives of the people we care about. The people whose 
who are breaking our hearts with the rejection of the offer of life that you give. God, show us your glory. But Lord, turn our eyes away from all of the flashy and showy things that we think are going to be your glory and move us back to the plain and to the regular and the steady and the ordinary means of grace you have ordained. Bring us back to singing together. Bring us back to communion together. Bring us back to your word together. Bring us back to one another and let us see that Christ is playing in 10,000 places and that we can see his glory anywhere we look and see evidence of you. Father, show us your glory. It's because Jesus left your glory behind that we can even turn our faces to you. So in his name, we give our thanks and we pray.